0: days ahead, be intentional to pray every day uh, for the Mississippi State Bulldogs. That would be great. (laughs) As you know, my nephew plays for Mississippi State and we're enjoying watching them. Uh, We have many Allen family members in Omaha right now and uh, Providence would have it, we as a family. Karen and the children will be going to Orange Beach uh, in the days that follow. So we are in the wrong part of the country and have committed ourselves to a lease, or we would be in Omaha, which is just up the road from Kansas City. So I know we have Ole Miss fans here. I know we have Mississippi State fans. Uh, I'm reminded of Jacques Chirac after 9-11, who famously said, uh, the French premier said, we are all Americans now. So for the next 10 days, we are all Bulldogs fans, okay? Let's covenant together. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're looking together at just a few verses that speak to us about the man of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 12 in particular and thinking about the topic this morning, how to leave a legacy that matters. How to leave a legacy that matters. 1 Timothy chapter 6, be reading verses 10 through 12, how to leave a legacy that matters. I want to invite all the men in the room to stand with me as we read these three verses. Let's stand together, gentlemen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 10 with special attention to 11 and 12. "'For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil.' And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray together. Father, we bow this morning around this auditorium are hundreds of men standing, men who perhaps are fathers, husbands, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, nephews, cousins, and all the rest. Even as these men stand, we're reminded through the physical representation of the great contribution these men make to this church and to your kingdom. And Father, I pray today for each man in the room, Father or not, that we would be spurned on to greater works and good deeds for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would consider anew the reality that each one of us leaves a legacy, each one of us leaves a wake and for us to leave a legacy awake that indeed influences our children and all of our posterity for generations to come towards godliness in Christ's likeness. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. You may be seated. 1 Timothy chapter 6 presents us with this designation, man of God. Paul is writing to Timothy, his son of the faith, and instructing him throughout the chapters of 1 Timothy what a healthy church is to look like, how a church is to function, how a church is to order itself, what it is to believe, how it should worship, and so forth. As the book comes to an end, he begins to zero in on Timothy and speak to him in a most personal and even spiritually paternalistic way. He invokes in chapter 6, in verse 11, this title that is quite rare in the New Testament. This title, man of God. In the Old Testament, it shows up in many places. The prophets of old were often referred to as a man of God. The patriarchs of old were often referred to as men of God. But here it shows up, and in the Old Testament, if you search it from Matthew to Revelation, you will see that designation is only applied to one person, and that is Timothy by the Apostle Paul. In this passage, he speaks to Timothy and thus to us today about what it means to be a man of God. And my aspiration for myself and for each of the men in the room today is that we would wear that label, that we would be worthy of that label in the truest sense, and that we indeed would be legacy leavers through our children and through their children and so forth in such a way that we would shape and leave a legacy that matters. What self-respecting man in the room doesn't aspire to leave a legacy? Of course you do, I do. We often think of these in different superficial ways, seeking to influence our children, let's say, in how they would steward money and leave a financial legacy, uh, steward them culturally with certain cultural convictions, Incur- steward certain uh, aspirations or desires or, or, or even teams and sporting the teams that we would follow and pass down from father to son and so forth. All of those may be appropriate and fitting and right, but there is a legacy greater than all that we should aspire to leave. That is a legacy of godliness. The reality is that we can leave a legacy that is powerful and strong and true for the good of our families and for the broader glory of God in the church and throughout the kingdom. Close to 100 years ago, a a profound study was undertaken by two different individuals, one many of you have heard of, the other you probably haven't. It was in the early part of the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century, and a, a major longitudinal study was done on the life of Jonathan Edwards and the life of a man named Max Jukes. Edwards of course was the great preacher of the great awakening in the 1740s and 1750s and 1760s. He was used by God the preaching of Edwards and the preaching of Whitfield to to kickstart a revival on the continent here and to establish our nation on a Christian footing. Edwards has been described as the greatest preacher of the English language by some, the greatest mind America ever produced. A great theologian and pastor, he was truly brilliant. He would die uh, president of what would come to be known as Princeton University by undergoing an experimental smallpox uh, inoculation that took his life. But when Edwards died, he had already set in motion a legacy that would impact the world. Max Jukes, one of Edwards' contemporaries, they did not know one another but lived in the same season, he was known for the total opposite— Max Jukes was a man who lived a life of outright debauchery, a life of rebellion, a life of sin, and was notorious for that sin. So in the first half of the 20th century, this longitudinal study was done over the course of about two centuries to trace the descendants of Edwards and the descendants of Max Jukes. It's a bit dated now, but the point will ring home. The descendants of Max Jukes over 200 years, roughly, 440 of those lived lives of debauchery. 310 of his descendants were paupers and vagrants. 190 of his descendants were prostitutes. 130 of his descendants were convicted criminals. 100 of his descendants were alcoholics. 60 of his descendants were habitual thieves. Five of his descendants were victims of impurity, and seven of his descendants were convicted murderers, all from one man. Jonathan Edwards, on the other hand, in stark contrast, throughout a similar time horizon, the longitudinal study revealed that of Edwards' descendants, 300 of them became clergymen, missionaries, or theological professors. A hundred and twenty of his descendants became college professors. A hundred and ten of his descendants became attorneys. Sixty became physicians. Sixty became authors. Thirty became judges. Fourteen became university presidents. Numerous giants in American industry, three U.S. congressmen, and one vice president of the United States. I want you to take away from that opening illustration this, your life, men, gentlemen, gentlemen, Fathers, your life makes a difference. How you lead it, how you order it, the words that come from your mouth, the convictions you hold, the way you shape your children and their children and their children, you have the power to send your family tree on a trajectory that will be defined by great health and great godliness or by great sickness and great worldliness. How do you resolve this morning? Will you resolve with me this morning to be a legacy lever to leave a legacy that matters in the kingdom? Here's what we're going to do. See with me in these verses quickly, three truths or three action steps, three action steps for the man who would seek to leave a godly legacy, a legacy that matters. Notice with me first, verse 11. The man of God is known by what he flees from. Now, wait a minute. Is a man of God one who runs? Absolutely. I thought a man of God would stand boldly. He does. I thought a man of God would fight. He will. But first notice what Paul tells Timothy and thus tells us this morning, that the man of God must be ready and prepared to run away from certain things. That's what he tells Timothy in verse 11. It opens with these five words, but flee from these things. Now, anytime you see the word but in your Bible or the word therefore in your Bible, you need to draw a circle around it and ask yourself, what is this in contrast to? Paul here is linking back, first of all, to this pursuit of money, this this craven love for money. And then more distantly back, he's he's referring back to a life of impurity as it relates to sexual desires and sexual pursuits. Notice verse 6, what he says. He says to Timothy, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it. If we have food and covering, which with these things we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, we, we have to right size this concern. Clearly, Paul is charging Timothy not about money, but about the love of money. Verse 10, in fact, is one of the the most often misquoted and misrepresented verses in all the Bible. Money is not the root of all evil. The the love of money, this endless pursuit of money, finding your well-being and your identity and the accumulation of money. Paul tells Timothy, that is the root of all sorts of evil. I'm a card-carrying capitalist. I believe when it comes to economic structures, that is the closest thing we can derive from Scripture as to how an economy and a nation should so organize itself. So I'm a free market capitalist and proud of it, and believe I stand on solid biblical grounds being such. Moreover, we notice even in this passage other commendable words about work and about resources. For instance, notice chapter 5, verse 8. Here in this context, we're reminded that if anyone does not provide for his own, chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, that, that's, that's strong wording. Paul is saying, look, you're to work. You're to care for your family. Provide for your family. Suit their needs. Notice also verses 17 and 18, here speaking in particular to the pastor or to elders, pastors who serve in the context of the local church. Verse 17 of chapter 5, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of, of double honor. That's a reference to compensation, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul says, look, you are to care for your family. Moreover, compensating someone well, here this reference in 17 and 18, to, to one who would faithfully preach and teach God's Word and faithfully shepherd God's people. You know, you're not only trying to figure out how, you know, what to pay them the least, but you want to care for and to bless So I'm bringing those other verses into verse 11 here of chapter 6 to put in context and say, look, there's a balance here. Paul's point is not that we're to be lazy or or, or not to have ambitions for our family financially. His point is we have to right-size those. The man who's always in search of the next deal who's on an endless pursuit to line up a get-quick-rich scheme, the man who's always at the office to satisfy his own materialistic desires, he's not going to leave a godly legacy. Why? Because leaving a godly legacy goes back to the word love, which most often is spelled T-I-M-E. Paul says, look, Don't be given to the endless pursuit of wealth. Right-size it. Be willing, in fact, to flee from this thing. Flee from the snare of an endless pursuit of wealth. And also, a reference earlier in the text here, flee from the pursuit of sexual pleasure. God has given us a wife and families, most all of us, in which the context of health is right and ordered. Those who would be wayward and who would drift and seek seek, seek sensual desires and pleasures outside of the God-ordained relationship given us, that is a train wreck for disaster. And Paul doesn't merely say, like, be guarded against it or, or be aware of it or be cautious about. He says, you flee flee. Men, I care about you enough this morning to speak with you with all the candor I can muster. And I say to you, if you find yourself in either of these compromising situations, you run from it. Moreover, you should be crystal clear with your wife and inasmuch as their age is appropriate with your family about the own guardrails and parameters you have in your life to prevent not only the occurrence of evil, but even the appearance thereof. Do you want to leave a godly legacy? It begins by knowing what you are to run after. Aren't you taking this a little bit too seriously this morning, Pastor? No, I'm not. Because I can't tell you how many families over two decades of ministry I've seen wrecked by these two areas spinning out of control. Secondly. You want to leave a godly legacy? Secondly, the man of God is known by what he follows after. By what he follows after. Notice verse 11. You man of God, you flee from these things and you pursue. You follow after. And notice this line. You follow after. You pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, love perseverance, and gentleness. Now, whenever we read our Bibles, look at me. Whenever we read our Bibles and we come across a list, there is an, there is a, an, an inclination to kind of skim it and almost assume it's just a pileup of words, and thus each word probably isn't that important. That's not the case here. That's not the case anywhere. Each one of these words are important because this is Paul giving us specific instructions, gentlemen. As to what we are to cultivate in our hearts, the type of lifestyles we are to pursue, and he's saying we must be deliberate, we must be intentional, we must be directional, and here's what we are to pursue after. Notice, righteousness. The outward appearance of just doing what is right before God and man. A wise man once told me it's always right to do what's right. And you want your children and your wife to see that, to see that instinct within you that there is a moral compass, God's Word. There is a backbone, it's a spiritual one, to be be committed to God's Word. And every time a family crisis or a moral question comes up, people aren't wondering, how's dad going to come down on this? There's a predictability because they know you to be a man of the Word and thus a man of righteousness pursue godliness. This here is the inward reality of righteousness. Righteousness refers to the outward acts, the outward lifestyle. Godliness here refers to the inner person, the inner man, the the attitudes. We might say god-likeness, reverence for God that flows from a heart of worship. So that we run the race in such a way, as Paul would say, that, that we don't run aimlessly. We're not boxing, beating the air. Moreover, we're not going to run in such a way that we find ourselves one day being disqualified from the race, but we're pursuing it faithfully. That's the kind of man you want to be, man. You want to be the kind of man that your children look, to your, look into your eyes and they see dignity and godliness and righteousness You ought to be the kind of man that when you look in the eyes of your children, you see emanating from their eyes respect and trust and affection because you've proven yourself true a thousand times over. Third, pursue faith. Pursue faith. A confident trust in God that everything is going to work out in accordance with God's plan. That dad granddad. He's not a hand wringer. He's not pacing the floors at night. He's not emotionally volatile because he's always worried about what's about to go wrong, but he's a man of faith because his roots have went down deep in the Christian life and in the Word of God. And when the winds blow, that tree is not swayed over. love, love. This word here, agape, this, this sacrificial love, this givenness love, choosing to love the wife, choosing to love the family in a way that is not zero-sum where there are winners and losers, but willing to give all, sacrificially for the well-being of your family. Notice also, perseverance, perseverance. To, means to, to remain under, the type of person who under pressure or under trial continues to be steady and to push through. And again, regardless of who is doing what and how everyone else is acting responsibly, this man is mature. He perseveres. And then I love this, the final word to pursue, gentleness, kindness, meekness, especially with family. Man, if you're going to be the kind of man that barks, and I suppose we all are on occasion, bark at your colleagues at work, not at your wife and kids. If you're going to be the kind of man that barks, bark at the guy at the automotive dealership who's trying to take advantage of you. Bark at the guy at the business encounter who's trying to get over on you. Bark at the person in the marketplace who's trying to make you a pushover. Don't be the kind of man who's a pushover at work and a pushover in the commerce and a pushover in the city, and a pushover but he comes home, he sure likes to rule the roost. Don't be that kind of man. Be the kind of man that with the wife and children, especially, there's an even killness, there's a gentleness to where when you raise your hand, they're not bracing. When you open your mouth, they're not wincing. they understand you love and you care. That's what. The man of God is to pursue, is to follow after. Now, ladies and wives, some of you have been there elbowing your husband and saying, are you you taking notes? Are you you getting this all down? You have a tremendous impact on the extent to which your husband pursues these things. As you root him on, as you honor him with supportive and kind words, as you ease him into these traits by encouraging him accordingly— you'll be amazed at his response and how happy he is and eager he is to make you, of all people, proud and thankful for him. Now, time is moving here, so notice with me the third step, the third key to leaving a legacy that matters, and that is the man of God is known by what he fights for. Notice verse 12. I I love this. We go from running to standing the fighting. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight. It's on the heels of gentleness. Notice the end of verse 11, this reference to gentleness. Yet men are fighters here. The word is to, to agonize. This is an athletic or even military term that refers to to an ongoing struggle, an ongoing givenness. And Paul says here, you fight the, the good fight. It's a noble fight. It's an excellent fight. You give yourself to fighting this noble fight of faith. Where do you fight it? Three places. First of all, you fight for it in your own heart. Every day, beginning your day with a intentionally putting on the mind of Christ and seeking to be a man of the Scriptures. You fight for it, secondly, in your home. And thirdly, you fight for it in your church, that your church understands you to be a man of biblical conviction and a man who wants to do the right thing before God and man. But back to that second place, you fight for it. You fight for it in your family. Men, in 20 years of ministry, I have seen thousands and thousands, literally, of wives and mothers who drag the kids to church but their husband stays behind on rare occasion do I see the man who drags the kids to church with the wife staying behind what do I mean by that I mean this it is uncanny men if you will take the spiritual leadership and prioritize the Lord's day it's uncanny how your wives nine times out of ten will fall in and want to be a part and support you and go with the kids as well with that is the reality of a profound stewardship that you have to fight for the faith in your home, to set the temperature, spiritually speaking, to prioritize the Lord's day, and to lead in that way in such a degree that your wives and children find themselves naturally leaning in with you and behind you and under you and beside you unto these things. Don't you want that? I know you do. Prioritize it. The good fight of faith. Notice verse 12. The faith here is referring to the faith. In other words, we see faith used really two different ways in the Bible. Sometimes faith is an expression of belief. I have placed my faith in Christ. Or don't worry, friend, I have faith in you. I believe in you. Other times we see faith referred to as, as the faith, referring to the Christian truth. Like when, when Jude tells us to uh, contend earnestly for the faith delivered once and for all for the saints. Here Paul is telling Timothy, the man of God, he, he fights for the faith. It doesn't mean you have to be a theologian, but, but you are intentional about the Scriptures and the Gospel. And again, to pass this legacy of truth on to your family, and beyond. Notice what else he says in verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. He's saying get get a grip on it. Have a, a grip on the reality of the eternal life. He says, look, you made the confession, the presence of many witnesses. We know you're a believer, Timothy. You've placed your faith in Christ. You've made that public confession, but you lean into it. You see, the Christianity isn't a box to be checked. The Christ life is not an event that occurred to you 28 years ago and you haven't revisited since. Christianity is not simply about coming forward or getting baptized. Yes, those are essential steps, absolutely. But if your Christian life resembles more a date or an event that happened in times past than a living, active dynamic within your inner person. I am concerned about you. You take hold of the faith. You grow in it. You pursue it. And as you do, the ripple effects are profound. Man, look at me this morning. There are a lot of things your children need. They need a well-tempered father. They need a predictable income so they're not having eight-year-old stress about whether or not they're going to have clothes or food. They need to see a father who loves their mother. They need to see a father who's behind them. All of those things and more are essential. But most of all, let me tell you what every kid needs. Every kid needs a daddy who loves Jesus. And the greatest gift you can give your family this Father's Day is not a nice meal, not even a special afternoon outing. The greatest gift you can give them is the greatest gift you can give yourself is the greatest gift God has given any of us. It is on this Lord's Day, this Father's Day, to say, I am putting my faith in Christ. Perhaps your wife drug you to church today, or you came because you want to be with your family. I'm thankful for whatever the motivating factor is, but know this. This day can be a turning point for your life. You may have blown it day after day for the past 15 years with your kids. I tell you, if today you'll make that turn and take a step towards Christ and believe Him, I promise you, you'll find your wife and kids exuberant with you, not criticizing you for a past That didn't measure up. But today is that day. If you don't know Jesus, I plead with you repent of your sins, believe in Him today, and give your kids, your wife, this day, a gift that they will forevermore praise your name for to become a Father who's following Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning. We pray during this moment of response. I pray, Father, for people in the room. I pray for the men in particular here today that you would spur us on to greater works and good deeds by the ministry of your Spirit. Father, I pray that these verses would resonate profoundly with us in particular, the men. And in our lives, we recommend ourselves to to leave a legacy that matters more than money, more than things, a legacy built on the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ. And Father, I speak now an intimate word to the men in the room who don't know Jesus. Father, I pray in this moment as we sing a hymn of response, you would tug their hearts here. Tug their hearts to Jesus. Tug their hearts to you so that they may have life and have it abundantly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing a hymn of response.